Isn't this a privilege to be able to read God's Word? First Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Man, it is so good to be with you. Uh, when I'm here, I always feel like I'm with family. And uh, it's great to see old friends, the Sheffers and the Goodlings and the Winds and uh, the Makas are back. And man, it's just such a privilege to get to be with you guys. Um, I have this morning for you what I think is a, a simple message. Uh, I want to encourage you to embrace your unimpressiveness. Now, before you get offended with me uh, and think, man, why in the world do we bring this guy up from Gaithersburg to tell us we're unimpressive? Um, we are all unimpressive before the foot of the cross, right? And we, when we let go of our own attempts to be impressive, uh, it frees us to embrace the power uh, of the cross. Uh, in this section of First. Corinthians, if you're unfamiliar with it, the primary problem that Paul's addressing is division. Uh, there is division in the church, especially around who follows which leader. Uh, that's a big deal for the Corinthians. Uh, Paul appeals to them in verses 10 through 17 to stop. Uh, he has kind of a just stop it moment. <laughs> uh, quit with the division, agree be of one mind and, and be united. And he reasons with them 
that Christ is not divided. And Christians are not joined to leaders, they're joined to Christ. And so when we embrace the reality of who we're united to, it frees us to embrace and pursue our common unity uh, in Jesus. And so now in this passage, Paul develops his case for why the Corinthians should stop being so enamored by men and instead be united around the cross. Uh, Francis Schaeffer was a Christian teacher and leader who spent decades, uh, if you're not familiar with his ministry in the mid, uh, late 20th century, uh, as a pastor, apologist, speaker, uh, writer. He discipled people in the faith from around the world, uh, from his home base in Switzerland called Brie. And I think he had a fairly unique vantage point. Uh, on the place of the church in the broader world that relates to the, the point that Paul's making here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he preached a sermon once that was pub- published under the title, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. And I want to read a bit of that to you. He says, the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus which surrounds us. All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. It's a bold claim, but I think Schaefer was on to something. And it seems to me that the point he's making uh, at that time is almost exactly the point that Paul is making in our text this morning. And I think you and I might fill in a few different isms. In our list uh, of things that we feel surrounded by when we read Schaefer's quote, but I'm sure we're aware of various pressures surrounding us. And it, it seems that in response, the church has been perennially tempted to think and act as if the word of God and the spirit of God are not quite enough. To think that if we add some other technique, if we sort of spice it up with some human, human effort, that we might make the gospel just a little more effective than it would be on its own. I can feel this. I don't know if you sense this in my own personal life. When I think about the people that God's called me to serve, think about my, my marriage, think about my, my family. I have six children. And man, it is tempting to try to help them get from point A to point B spiritually, not only with the gospel and with prayer, but with a a little more oomph from dad. You know what I mean? Uh, A little more power of dad's personality or, or forcefulness of his tone of voice or a little technique that might get the job done. Uh, But then even just relationally in our conversations with unbelievers, right? Uh, We can, we can be aware of these pressures and we might think, man, if we can just sand off uh, some of the rough edges of our faith, uh, some of the angular portions of the gospel, if we smooth those out a bit, it might make uh, our message a bit more palatable. 
And things like that are rarely, if ever, ill-intended. But the unavoidable reality is that the gospel will always seem completely ridiculous to people who perceive it merely through the eyes of their own nature and through the eyes of the world's measurements and not through the eyes of faith enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And so our attempts to make it seem uh, less difficult, uh, to make it seem uh, more palatable will either fail or make us look even more ridiculous by being those who just sort of copycat the world's terms. Or it may give the appearance of success, but in reality denies the true power of the gospel. And so, as Schaefer says, the Lord's work must be done in the Lord's way. Uh, Even though the, the method and the message have always been and always will be unimpressive from the world's point of view. But as Paul says, to those who are being saved, the message and methods of the cross are the very power of God. So uh, the title of this morning's message, if you're a title note-taking kind of person, uh, is the unimpressive power of the cross. Kids, you can title this, How to Get Over Yourself and Rest in Jesus. (laughs) Whichever one you like better. Uh, The passage develops, if you've got your Bible open, I hope you keep it open with me, uh, develops very clearly in three paragraphs. Uh, So we'll follow those paragraphs with these three points. The unimpressive message of the cross, the unimpressive people of the cross, and the unimpressive preaching of the cross. First up, the unimpressive message of the cross. If you've got your Bible, you can look back in verse 18. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul is showing here that the real lines of division that that really do exist in the world, that really do exist in Corinth, that really do exist for us are in very different places than where the Corinthians have drawn them. If you know anything about uh, the city of Corinth, the the people of the city uh, of Corinth are uh, are out to make a name for themselves. Uh, They're out to make a living for themselves. They they are climbing a a ladder of achievement and and growth, and the city kind of pulsates with that kind of, of pursuit. And so people are constantly in that culture and perhaps tempted in that church to sort of look around and see who is progressing up the right ladders in society. Who are the people that are, that are going down those ladders? And, and how can I sort of align myself accordingly? Uh, if I'm in this city and I'm trying to make a living, uh, I'm trying to establish a business, I'm trying to make a, a name and a place for myself, I need to be aligned with the right, the right people. And Paul sort of steps into that among a a church of of Corinthian people who kind of uh, breathe that air all week long. And he says, when you do that, and when you let yourselves do that in the church, you're like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, You're sorting out new lines of division, but but that whole mindset, that whole worldview is going to end in destruction. Because the real lines of demarcation 
is not around the things that you've placed it around, these kind of impressive people. The real lines of demarcation are around who is on the right and wrong side of the judgment of God at the cross. So people, according to Paul in verse 18, are on one of two paths. Uh, The path to perishing or the path to salvation. And which path they're on is revealed by how they respond to this message of the cross. How they respond to the gospel. And he says, if, if they are perishing, that, that message, the cross, will appear just absolutely foolish to them. But he says, if they're being saved, the cross will not only appear, it will be the very power of God to them. Now, to be clear, that, that power is available to everyone. Uh, anyone can be on the path of salvation rather than the path of, of perishing. The, the, the choice is, is yours and mine. But they are... Paul helps us see mutually exclusive options. He's sort of calling people to come down off the fence of indecision and plant their feet on the side of Jesus. And after making this claim, Paul supports it with a quote from the Old Testament. This is the first of at least 14 times in the book of 1 Corinthians where uh, he'll do this. He raises an issue. And then he he states how to deal with that issue. And then he supports it with uh, a text from the Old Testament. And so you could say one way that that Paul is uh, uh, addressing the Corinthians in this whole letter is helping them apply the Old Testament to their lives through the lens of the gospel. Now, if you'll suffer me a bit of a side note here, I think it's it's somewhat popular in, in some of our circles to hear things even among some prominent teachers about like unhitching your faith from the Old Testament. Um, The early church was taught and discipled primarily from the Old Testament. The book of 1 Corinthians is Paul applying the Old Testament uh, to our lives. And so I would like to, if I may encourage you, don't do that. Uh, Now, I know you have been and probably will be again in Genesis, right, Matt, for a long time. So this is not a church that has that issue. Well, let me encourage you to not grow weary in doing good. It's good to read and apply the Old Testament through the gospel to your life. That's what Paul's doing here. The Old Testament passage that he quotes is Isaiah 29, verse 14. Uh, it's a prophecy of God's judgment on Israel. And it says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Uh, There's another translation of that verse that says, the shrewdness of the shrewd, I will nullify. That's the quote that Paul's applying here. Uh, God is not opposed to wisdom. God is not opposed to discernment. Think in a manner of speaking, we could say he's not even opposed to shrewdness. Those can be good things. The issue is whether it's true wisdom and true discernment, uh, whether it's from God or a false wisdom promoted by people who claim to be wise in their own eyes. And so this is a warning to those in Isaiah and in Corinth who had come to rely primarily on human ability rather than on God. And then that quote is followed by four rhetorical questions. You'll see them in verse 20, if you're looking at your Bible. 
And they show, I feel right at home. I got six kids. One of them's 18 months old. This is making me feel warm and fuzzy. Look at verse 20. It says, uh, there's four rhetorical questions that are showing the different groups of his day. And what they looked for, these different groups, what they looked for in teachers and in teaching. It says, where is the one who was wise? That's kind of a Greek thing. Uh, Greeks are into wisdom. Paul talks about that. We have a, uh, a moment in Acts 17 when Paul is addressing people in Athens. As he says, man, they just love to get together and hear new ideas and talk about new stuff. These are the guys that are going to all the TED Talks. They're sharing them with each other. They just love new concepts and teachings, and they're fascinated by these things. It says, where is the scribe? This is the Jewish teacher of the law. Knew the text inside and out, but legalistically so. Where's the debater of this age? This is a reference to the great rhetoricians that the people in Corinth in particularly, man, they just loved. If you can imagine a world without the internet, without television, without uh, uh, the kind of, of fascination with sports in the same way that we have now, none of that. Um, gathering to hear these great rhetoricians was like uh, the entertainment of the day. And often they would stand and just capture the attention of vast crowds, but they were high on rhetorical ability and entertainment and low on content. It was like a diet of Skittles, you know? It's like enjoyable, but there's not much there, and eventually it's going to make you sick. And Paul's saying, What's, where, where are they? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, verse 21, the world did not go, know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So contrary to all those things that people in Corinth were just itching to hear and to see in Paul's day, Paul offers something that is entirely different and even contrary. You might even say subversive to uh, the, the mores of his time. And it's in verse 23. He shares what we have on offer, what we preach is Christ crucified. And this is a stumbling block to Jews. It is folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolish, foolishness of men is, of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This message of the cross seems absolutely foolish to them. Uh, those who want power, Paul says, are offered a savior who was killed. Uh, those who want wisdom are, are offered by Paul a sage who couldn't save himself. So it seemed. But what is true power and true wisdom, Paul says, is this, Christ crucified. So if we go back to what's the problem that he's addressing here, it's that the Corinthian view of the cross is that they want it to be more palatable. They want it to be culturally more in line with 
their interests. They wanted to serve their advancement in the, in the world around them rather than hinder it. And so when their preachers and teachers don't offer what they, seem, uh, what they believe to be that kind of palatable message, the people of the Corinthian church criticize certain preachers and align around others who they believe are, are offering that kind of palatable message. And this is creating factions in the church. And what Paul is saying is what they ought to do instead is stop trying to save face in their respective corners of the culture. I think we face similar pressures at times. Uh, pressures to make our faith acceptable in certain company. Pressures maybe to find a spokesman for our brand of Christianity that people in our cultural circles will find uh, acceptable. But in the pursuit of unity with cultural wisdom and power, we can unknowingly separate ourselves from one another and actually distance ourselves from the gospel. We create our own versions of what the Corinthians were saying. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. And it would seem to me that in our cultural moment, I don't know if this resonates with you, but it seems to me in our cultural moment, this is happening among Christians at an alarming rate. It happens among left and right, black and white, economically up, economically down. And brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. So what do we do about, about that? Well, in short, I think Paul's appeal to us here could be summarized like this. Keep Christianity weird. Now, you might think we're doing a great job of that around here. I know a few people in here are doing a really good job at that. Um, but I do think he wants us to embrace what is distinctive from us in light of the world around us. And one of the things that is most distinctive about us is that we are not aligned around what the world is aligned around. Our ultimate allegiances are not political or demographic or economic. We are aligned around the gospel. And when we let our grasp slip on those things, slip on what's most central and most important, we may garner attention for our brand, but we will undermine our mission. The unimpressive message of the cross. Secondly, the, the unimpressive people of the cross. Paul is making his case against trying to make the cross more acceptable. And after speaking to the message, he basically says to the Corinthians, uh, and hey guys, if you're trying to make the message more palatable because it seems impressive, um, look around. <laughs> uh, 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 take a look around the room uh, do you guys really think you're the ones to make this seem more impressive, right? Uh, and he goes down this list. Let me just read it briefly. For consider your calling, brothers. Think about yourselves for a moment. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Uh, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he says, take a look at who you are. Then think about for a moment, Christian, how you got there. And then he considers why God did it that way. Uh, The Corinthian church, he says, is largely unimpressive according to the world. Now we know they've got a few uh, impressive people. Romans 16 uh, says the city treasurer was a member of the Corinthian church. So if you sat next to that guy on a Sunday, you might be like, okay, wow, I'm sitting next to somebody that's kind of got some clout in, in the city. Uh, the former ruler of the synagogue in Corinth was a member of the Corinthian church, and that probably would have had a, a position of certain status. Um, Chloe, mentioned in the last passage, was probably a wealthy patroness uh, of the church. And so the Corinthians are not without some people of status. But there are not many. Uh, Not many were wise. Remember, that's what the Greeks love. And so by those standards, not many of you guys were very high on the ladder. It says not many were powerful. That's what the Jews loved. Not many from the right families with the right connections, the things the Corinthians were into. But he says in verse 27, you were foolish by those standards. In the world's eyes, you were Weak. And so what sets them apart now? Their resumes don't set them apart. Their positions don't set them apart. Their birth certificates don't set them apart. What sets them apart first is this one thing. Three times in verse 27 and 28, God chose. The Corinthians are a people. Christ Church Mount Airy is a people chosen by God, beloved of a heavenly father. And after that, he says in verse 30, a a renovation takes place in you. The beginnings of a resurrection take place. Unimpressive people begin to be transformed from the inside out, not into the world's image, but into the image of Jesus. He says, and because of him, because of God's choosing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So here's what that means. God took a people because of his mercy. And when they came to believe in the message of the cross and trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord, they are united To Christ. And they are then changed in a number of ways. First, he says there's there's wisdom, there's a a change in perspective. Uh, Christ becomes not foolishness to you, but he actually becomes your wisdom. You begin to learn to view the world through new eyes, not through the eyes of how the culture informs you, but through the eyes of how your creator informs you. Then he says he becomes your righteousness. There, there is a change in your standing. Before God, 
you are no longer unholy. You are no longer mired in sin, but you have been clothed in the righteousness of God. And so the standing that you were so eager to sort out in your culture and community, you were so eager to make sure that you had a a right place, you had a seat at the table, that when you walked into the cafeteria with your lunch tray, you wanted to make sure you were with the cool kids. Well, that's that's all done now. You have a standing, and that standing before God is holy and righteous, his beloved sons and daughters, because you are united to Jesus. And when you have that standing, uh, all others pale in comparison. Then he says, Christ is your sanctification. There's a change in your purpose. There's a change in, in how you think about your growth in life. You are no longer destined to sort of hover under the glass ceiling of your own performance as evaluated by the eyes of the world around you. You are set apart now for the very purposes of God. And so what you're leaning forward for, what you're working at, what you're trying so hard to to get after is not the endeavors and pursuits of the things of the world first and foremost. You're set apart for the purposes of God. And he says, Christ has become to you your redemption. There's a change in your hope. You are no longer lost and hopelessly enslaved in bondage to sin. He says, you are freed and destined for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, waiting in heaven for you. And he just teases out This is what happens when unimpressive people stop trying to be impressive to the world and trust in Christ alone. And then lastly, he begins to get at some of the why. Of all the ways God could have done his work in the world, why would he do it this way? Is there any purpose in it? Well, there is, and Paul gives several. He says he did it to shame the self-reliant. It says he, he, he did it this way to humble, verse 28, the self-empowered. Verse 29, he talks about doing this to eliminate the ability of any man or woman to boast in themselves in the presence of God. So that, that no one, no one will stand in the presence of God on the last day and say, Lord, look what I did. Know that when we gather in the throngs of masses of people who stand before the Father in the new heavens and the new earth, all, anyone will be able to say is look what God did. Look how good God's been. Look at what he's done, not just in me. Look at what he has done in this untold number of masses of people. That's why God chooses to do what he does through the unimpressive message and people of the cross. And so for us, that means that our achievements, as wonderful as they are, do nothing to make the gospel more powerful. Uh, Your academic credentials or your 
uh, business acumen or your, acad- your uh, athletic achievements. Do nothing to make the gospel more powerful. As wonderful as those things may be. What has been turning lives upside down for the good for two millennia is the message of a crucified Savior delivered to and by an unimpressive people. I love there's an old early church uh, preacher, Chrysostom, who makes this observation. He says, in human terms, it was not possible for fishers to get the better of philosophers. But that is exactly what happened by the power of God's grace. The unimpressive message of the cross, the unimpressive people of the cross, and then very briefly, the unimpressive preaching of the cross. Paul says, I, he begins to turn to himself, not just his message, not just the Corinthians. Now it's, it's a bit autobiographical. He's talking about his own experience. And he says, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Uh, Paul, by many measures, could have been considered an impressive guy. Uh, He had pretty top-rank training. Uh, By our standards today, he would have had some letters behind his name. He had had some pretty remarkable experiences. He had trained with some of the best uh, that could be trained with in the whole realm of Jewish religion. Uh, he, He knew what he was doing. But he says, when he got to Corinth, there was a decided simplicity. Uh, There was a a determined unimpressiveness. Uh, He didn't use, apparently, the tools of rhetoric that were likely at his disposal. Remember when Paul's, uh, again, at Acts 17 in front of the people of Athens, and he's quoting uh, their own poets. He's quoting their philosophers. He's making observations about the idols he's seen going around town. And he's drawing from these experiences. And he's uh, using that as kind of bridges to be able to get these people to consider the gospel. Paul says, when I got to Corinth, I just decided, nope, uh, we're, not, we're not going that route. And we don't know exactly why. Could be that he was aware of some of these dynamics and just decided I'm not going there with these guys. But for whatever reason, he, he dialed back those tools. And man, you know, the way we talk to communicators is, uh, man, if you want to be a good communicator, you need to have and exude some confidence, right? You want to cultivate trust in what you're saying. And one way to undermine that is if you seem unsure of yourself, right? And so we tell people who are communicating, kind of stand and, and, and deliver confidently. Um, and, and we usually treat uh, expressions of anxiety as like um, not helpful to that end, right? If you kind of get up and you seem like you're not quite sure and now we want to kind of harness that and, and, and leave it behind and, and project confidence. And Paul's saying, no. Uh, I don't think Paul is lying here when he says he was trembling. And I don't think he did that kind of uh, as a show. Something about him was so fearful about addressing the Corinthians that he shook as he stood up before them. 
And, and, and despite all these expressions and experiences he had of, of anxiety, despite this uh, lack of presence he seemed to have, uh, he, he says he proclaimed this message intentionally that had no plausibility from a human standpoint. And again, we don't teach most people to communicate that way. Uh, if you're dealing with an audience that you might think be opposed to you, we'll usually say, hey, find some common ground. You know, find something that you can kind of align on and, and start there, you know, kind of win people's ear. And then, and then when you start to break ranks a little bit, they might be more likely to kind of follow along. And Paul's just like, no, what I said was completely implausible. I didn't come to you with words of, of plausibility. Why did he do that? Verse 5 says it was for this reason. So that their faith wouldn't rest in men. That is exactly what they have been doing. That's exactly what their problem has been. And it's created this fractious mess in the Corinthian church. So what made Paul so effective in Corinth? Because despite his refusal to use these rhetorical abilities and speak in these ways that seem plausible, uh, Paul actually had massive backlash uh, initially from the Jewish community there. How is it that in the span of about 18 months that we know he was in Corinth, he saw dozens of people come to faith in Christ? Here's what's clear from this passage. What made him effective? What made the gospel effective was not some sort of general approval and appreciation for his message or his methods. He had intentionally stripped himself of those kind of uh, adornments or accoutrements to the gospel. But he did that so that when people had their sins forgiven and their lives transformed, Paul could know and they could know that their faith did not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what I think is the bottom line for Paul. The church has become this fractious group. They are aligning themselves around the particular abilities of certain leaders. And Paul is saying to them, why would you take the very thing that so magnifies the power of God, the unimpressiveness of your leaders and their message, and then hide it? By now trying to align yourselves around these impressive people with these impressive abilities. And he says, when you do that, you are not only dishonoring Christ with your divisiveness. You are taking the very power that brought you into the kingdom of God. And supposing that these impressive people can like add to it. It's just ridiculous. So that you can enhance it and make it a little more palatable to the society around you. And he says, that's not only wrong-headed, it's what got you in this mess in the first place. This pattern is seen in the history of God's people all through redemption. Moses couldn't speak the part. David didn't look the part. Paul apparently didn't look the part. But God showed them mercy so that in them, the perfect patience of God would be displayed for all who were to believe in him. And that's true for the vast majority of Christians, I think. 
When you think back on what was the thing that made the penny of faith like drop in your life? Um, maybe for some of us, this very powerful and influential person, uh, maybe an athletic figure or a political figure shared a testimony and you were, you were one to the gospel that way. But my guess is for most of us, it was very normal, unimpressive, flawed people and parents and teachers and church members who shared the gospel with us that caused us to come to Jesus. And for me, I, I had some uh, guys in their mid-30s who were uh, unimpressive and who I love and remain unimpressive, uh, who just loved me. They showed up at my high school baseball games and watched me sit the bench <laughs> and then uh, took me out and, and just talked to me about how God had changed them. And over the course of, uh, of time around them, I began to see the transforming power of the gospel in their lives. And, and these very normal people in this very, very normal and unimpressive church turned my life upside down. I, I wonder who those people are in your life when you think about how you uh, were transformed by the gospel. How foolish was it for the Corinthians? How foolish would it be for us to come into the kingdom of God through the methods and message of a suffering savior and then try to grow the kingdom through the message and methods of the culture around us? I think we have to resist the temptation to make those around us and the church around us grow by trying to be more fast and more famous than God. And instead, whether it's your family, whether it's your kids, whether it's your neighbor, whether it's your small group, whether it's your church, my prayer for all of us would be let's facilitate growth around us by being, as Schaefer said, uh, people who do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, who do it with the truth of God's word with the power of God's spirit, because that's the way God has been transforming the world for a very long time. He is very good at it. We are not. <laughs> and when we adopt him and his methods and his message and are faithful with it, he does great things in our lives and in the communities around us. I started with Schaefer. Let me finish with Schaefer. Later in that message, he says, Is it not amazing? Though we know the power of the Holy Spirit can be ours, we still ape the world's wisdom, trust its forms of publicity and its noise, and imitate its ways of manipulating men. If we try to influence the world by using its methods, we are doing the Lord's work in the flesh. If we put activity, even good activity, at the center rather than trusting God, then there may be the power of the world, but we will lack the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that Christ Church will be people who embrace the unimpressive message and the unimpressive methods of the cross. God, and increasingly, as they rely upon you alone, as they trust in you and experience the freedom and joy of not having to advance themselves, but merely faithfully representing and advancing the gospel. God, that you would do great things, that the gospel would go forward in powerful and life-altering ways in them and through them. Lord, in Mount Airy, and I would even pray to the ends of the earth. In Christ's name, amen.